everybody. Welcome to The Smattering. Once again, I'm Jason Hall, joined by Jeff Santoro, the voice of the people. Jeff, thank God it's over. Thank God it's over. The, the most appropriately named podcast episode of the year, I think. Yeah, this is our, this is our 2022 year in review episode. You're going to be listening to this on New Year's Eve. If you listen to it when it drops, we are recording this a little afternoon on, on the 30th, Jeff. So the market's still open. The market's open until four today. Um, but it's not looking, not looking good. No, my my like game I'm playing with the market in my brain today is will it end down twenty percent or more? And we are very close right now, as of about twelve eighteen. Right. So that 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 twenty percent right that's the the bear market denominator. Um, so kind of a big trigger psychological number um, that we look at. And we know we went into a bear market. The S and P at least S and P five hundred went into a bear market. Earlier this year, we saw a little bit of a bounce back, but it hasn't been great the past few weeks, um, Jeff. So before before we get into the numbers here, I just want to here's here's what we're going to be talking about today. So we're going to give a review of the markets. Um, we're going to talk about our kind of our our big stories of the year, um, and we had a few of them, and we're going to talk about things that maybe under. Maybe underrated. Um, we're going to talk about things that not just have to do with this year, Jeff, the review, but we're also going to look forward and talk about some stories that we think are going to continue to be big stories, or maybe people haven't really thought a lot about, but we think are probably going to be big stories when it comes to finance and investing for 2023, right? Yeah. I mean, and the whole end of the year thing is an arbitrary marker anyway. Um, yep. We sort of align the stock market and investing with our you know, calendar year. But you know, there's really no reason we have to do it that way. So I think some of the stories we talked about, we're going to talk about are quote unquote 2022 stories. But I think a lot of them are going to be um, the same ones we're going to track into 2023. So we'll kind of have some overlap content here. Let's start, let's start with, the, uh, with the numbers. So Barring something insane, it's it's absolutely gonna. This is this is gonna be the worst year for investors since two thousand eight, right, Jeff? Yeah, um, which is kind of crazy to think about. I remember we were talking back in maybe early November, mid November, when we were starting to turn around a little bit, wondering like, you know, oh, was the worst over? Are we? Is it going to be all up? You know, downhill for our? I mean, uphill from here and and improve? And you know, here we are, uh, right in bear market territory as we end the year. Where are we where are we right now? Again, right so, about twelve twenty on on the last market day of the year. Yeah, so right right around now we are the S and P five hundred is down just shy of twenty percent nineteen point nine. <laughs> this is the number we wrote down here. Um, Nasdaq is down all thirty three point five percent. Dow is down nine point two three percent. And um, just to kind of take a look at bonds, because that's something that we we don't talk a lot about on this podcast, but it, it's a it's been a bad year for bonds too. Um, so the Vanguard Total Bond Market ETF that's down fifteen point two percent as of right now. So really, any anywhere you look um, hasn't been a great year. So first of all, let's remove that kind of arbitrary January first through today, and look at from the highs, the twenty twenty two highs. It just Strangely enough, the market was kind of neat this year, um, and and 
the indices all peaked that first week of January within the first couple of trading days. I think the fourth is when the last of, of the indices peaked. A couple actually peaked on the first day. But from the from the 2022 highs, the S&P 500 is, is, is down 20.4%, right? So that's definitely bear market. The Dow is down 10%, um, 10.3%. Um, again, the bond, the Van, Vanguard total bond ETF, which is a good proxy for the bond market down 15%. Um, I want to talk about the NASDAQ for a second. I haven't looked at the exact data, but I'm guessing that this is probably the worst year for the NASDAQ since probably 2002, somewhere around there. So we're talking two decades. Um, yeah, go ahead, I Jeff. mean, when you when you look back at at honestly the last two decades of like growth in the stock market, a lot of that has been because of the strength of the Nasdaq. So it 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 really is stark that it's had such a bad bad year and and such a fall from its high. Yeah, it's it's been tough. If you, I mean, if you look at the most valuable companies in the world, Microsoft, Alphabet, Apple, these are these are Nasdaq stocks. So there, there you go. There you go. Let's, let's talk about bonds for a second, because I think there's a couple of things. So, so number one, again, we go back to using the S&P 500 as the proxy for the market. Um, and then looking at the NASDAQ for the tech bubble, right? And we're going to talk more about that um, as, we, as we go through some of our stories here. I think it's fair to say, Jeff, that there is an entire generation of investors that this is really the first bad year they've ever experienced. One of the things you've talked about, Jeff, is like your your experience as an active investor picking stocks instead of just being passive with index funds in your retirement account in the 401k and all that's automatically happening in the background. You know, you started in early 2020 and a ton of other people did. And this is their first experience with stocks actually going down for a protracted period of time. Yeah, I mean like you said I've I've lived through I lived through the last couple, you know, big, you know, the great financial crisis and and also the dot com bubble a little bit in the very beginning of my investing career but not while I was actively picking stocks and you know, I I've said before like I I'm, I'm used to getting, you know, the quarterly statement in the mail and seeing like, oh man, you know, this was a bad quarter. Um but this has been several bad quarters, you know, <laughs> more than a year's worth. Um and yeah, when when you are actually when your head's a little more in it, like like mine is now compared to where it was for the past twenty something years, um, yeah, it's a uh, it's tough. It's it it's an, it's a buying opportunity, but it's tough to kind of it's tough to sit through and and watch the money that you've put into the market sort of at least temporarily get incinerated. Yeah, it's 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 hard, and you know that the, the, there's one other thing I wanted to talk about too is let's let's move beyond just thinking about younger investors, people that have gotten started sometime over the past decade. We're coming out of this protracted period of very, very low interest rates. And the, I mean, the, 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 the macro tailwind for 25, 30 years really has been falling interest rates, right? And we've seen ultra low rates for really about a decade. If we really want to go back to like 2012, um, coming out of the financial crisis when economic recovery was pretty strong and rates were still really low and capital was flowing back into the markets, right? Rates were 
very low for that entire period period of time. So one of the things that it's got me thinking about, Jeff, is how, in a way, it's possible that it's not even just younger investors um, that may be the most negatively affected by this, particularly in a permanent way, because yields have been so low, I can't help but wonder how many people out there are closer to retirement and have built up a large nest egg and really benefited from that massive tech tailwind to, to grow their returns. Because again, if you look at the, the returns of the S&P and the Dow, uh, not the Dow, but the S&P and, and, and NASDAQ indices, and the past decade has been well above average. You know, Normally, if you get about 8 or 9%, a year average, that's about like that's average, right? For the market over its over its history. The market's done better than that for a decade prior to, to this year. And I just I can't help but wonder how many investors that are closer to needing that can't risk that capital that have seen their portfolios decline far more than that 20% for the SP because they were still very tech heavy and they mm-hmm. were very bond light. Yeah, and you know, I, I I don't pretend to know about you know the macroeconomic conditions or or and I certainly can't foretell the future. But I've listened to a lot of smart people talk about how there's a lot of people who don't expect us to see the same results in the market going forward. You know that that nine ten percent annualized return, um, you know, doesn't mean that you're guaranteed nine or ten percent every year, right? That's that's yeah. an annualized number. So. You know, there's there's every there's every possibility that we could see a prolonged you know stretch of years where maybe the market only gives us you know mid to low single digits return. Yeah, just just for context, there's a lot of people that are that are they're looking at the market and the bears are thinking they're they're seeing the 1970s all over again. But the S and P 500 um, gained from the beginning of January 1970. Through the end of 1979, gained 16%. Not 16% a year, 16%. Now, that doesn't include dividends. That's just the value of the index. So you could dividends maybe a couple percent a year on top of that. But just the, the value, the increased value of all the components, the SP 500, an annualized 1.5%, which was far lower than inflation over that period. So, in terms of like actual real value, the S&P 500, the stock market lost value. Jeff, there's a lot of people that kind of expect the same potential outcome over the next decade. Yeah, and you know, it, the way I sort of wrap my head around those predictions is they could be right, but we really don't know. Um, and I think the best you can do is what we've been talking about over the past you know several months on the podcast: buy good companies, hold them for a long time. Um, you know, utilize all the different tools in the toolbox that we talk about. Um, you know, and hopefully, as we go through 2023 and beyond, we can have conversations about, you know, maybe, like I said earlier, like maybe bonds looking more attractive or other places to to put to put your capital other than, you know, just in the stock market. Maybe we all start thinking a little bit differently about our allocations heading forward. Well, you know, we'll have to see. Yeah, uh, Simon Simon Erickson, who's a former um, analyst from Motley Fool, founder and CEO of Seven Investing, tweeted recently that you know this is really becoming a stock pickers market. Talked about how over the past decade, if you if you basically picked a big tech name 
and held it for a decade. You know, Apple Alphabet, back when it was called Google, uh, Netflix, Amazon, Microsoft. You did really, really well. If this is a stock picker's market, it's a great stock picker's market for people that are in prime earnings years that have the time and the resources to find the great stocks or are going to pay for seven investing or stock advisor or one of the fools or, you know, one of those other vetted services of companies out there to kind of do that work. We've talked about sometimes you outsource the work. This is like one of those periods, you know, go ahead. No, I I agree. It's just uh, what, you know, I spent time over the past week seeing family like a lot of people did and, you know, having a few conversations with family members about investing type things. It, it just, it reinforced to me how hard it is when you're in a time like this. Like I, I had forgotten because you and I talk about it literally every week. Yeah. Um, but we're inoculated from that fear. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, you know, we, I think we still feel it, but we've sort of like talked our way out of it a little bit, but you know, just talking to family members who don't think about this all the time, but do have some, some individual stocks and are in the market. Um, I was kind of taken aback at how the vibe was very much like, oh, everything's down right now. I'm just, I'm just going to wait, you know, and that's good. I mean, it's better than everything's down right now. I'm going to sell and go to cash, right. but um, it just, it, it really kind of um, brought to the fore how, how difficult it can be when you're going through a, more than a year of just like, especially after two years of pretty much everything you do, you did worked. Now it feels like for over a year, everything you do doesn't work. Right. Um, that it's, it, you know, to say, oh, now this is the this is the time to to be buying is is easy to say, and I think harder to do. Yeah, and it's been long enough too from the the financial crisis when stocks were down for years and years and years that I think most people have forgotten what it feels like. <laughs> right when you see that protracted, you look at your statement from your four hundred one k and see it's down. Um, yeah, and and you know to your earlier point about where you are in your investing life makes a big difference. Like I, yeah. I was talking, one of the people I was speaking with. Um, is in retirement and said, and I made a comment about like, now's the time to be buying so that you can look back when the market recovers and say, oh, I'm so glad I bought these companies at those prices. And the, and the response I got was, yeah, but I don't have as much time as you. Um, you know, I don't, I don't have three decades to, to wait for this to kind of come right. back around and, and for me to look right. back at the prices I got today. Um, so yeah, I think that's something just to keep in mind, you know, where you are really does matter. Well, it's hard to uncrack the egg when you're already scrambling it for breakfast, right? Yeah. All right, let's move let's move on to our first story. And this is this is not even tangential. This is like the foundation of everything we're talking about, Jeff. And that's our, our biggest story for 2022. Undoubtedly, it's interest rates and inflation. Yeah, for sure. And and as I said earlier, this is going to be probably the biggest story as we enter and maybe even all the way through 2023 yeah. as well. Um you know, so I think I, I What's interesting is I think if we had this conversation a year ago, December of 2021, I don't think we would have had, you know, the amount of interest rate hikes that we saw this year on our bingo cards yet. Right. Um, you know, I and and I think on the other side too though, if maybe 6 to 9 months ago when we started to first see the interest rate hikes, I don't know that we would have seen a possibility that they could be slowing like we did the last couple. Um you know, I guess we'll have to wait and see what the Fed does. But um, seeing inflation cool off a little bit in the last couple reports, um, and maybe a possibility that the Fed takes their foot off the interest rate gas pedal just a little bit. Um, you know, I think that's going to be interesting to watch. They're they're trying to 
you know, the, the euphemism you hear all the time is go for a, a soft landing, right? Try to crash the economy just a little bit um, to, to stop inflation, but not go into a, a full prolonged recession. Um, and we'll see how, how good they do or, or don't do. But this will definitely be the, the dominant story heading into next year as well. Yeah, I, I want to talk a little bit more about it because I think we should like put some kind of frames on what what it means and how it's affecting everything. So, because as 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 people, as individuals, as families, the first thing you think about with interest rates is like yeah, a mortgage payment, right? That's the thing everybody talks about, um, and for for good reason, right? Because the interest on the mortgage is by far the biggest interest expense most people have, and you combine that with you know I mentioned that median. F- Single-family home prices have, have, have fallen about nine percent since the the peak, um, and are probably going to stabilize, is my guess, because of the supply and demand situation. But the prices are up like forty or fifty percent over the past several years. You combine that with this sharp increase in interest rates, which is still far below where it was in the eighties um, for for a good period of the eighties. You're still looking at people that are paying like double for a house, right? So that burden on a lot of families is substantial. But I think we, we need to think about it as investors. We need to go beyond that, right? Obviously, it's spare capital for people to put to work um, that means less for, for their future lives. But I, I, I think we really need to unpack um, how, how it affects the capital markets, how it affects equity markets, how it affects bonds. Um, because I think this is why it's so important. The, the reality is, I've talked about this before, but there's this kind of a pulley between equities and bonds because these are the two biggest pools of money for investment by and large, right? Um, trillions of dollars in, in stocks and bonds, right? And stocks is ownership of the companies, bonds is debt, right? Um, if you're the owner, you take on the risk of the business failing, right? Or something and not performing, and you don't earn profits, right? So you take on that risk on the front end, right? So there's a premium value or a discount of that value, right, that you get because you're leading the risk. If you're a bond, if you own a bond, if you're the bond owner, you're the lender. So in a worst case scenario, you, get you get whatever's left, right? Right, yeah. you get the scraps. So you, you stand ahead of the owner of the business in line in a worst case scenario, right? So bonds are safer, Right. The issue is that in these low yield environment that we've been coming through for the past decade is when you are investing, you're, you're taking today money and setting it aside for future money. You have goals that you're trying to reach. If you're a large investor, a pension fund, if you're uh, uh, an endowment, you have obligations that you have to meet, right? You have to earn a certain amount of return consistently to cover those obligations. You have pensioners that you have to pay their pensions, right? If you're an endowment, part of the endowment is a certain amount of money that you have to utilize every year, right? So those, those are entities that literally have to spend part of the billions of dollars that they have. So they're measuring the yield very specifically that they're earning for bonds. And if the yield's too low, they have to risk on. They have to risk on into equities to try to earn a higher return, right? That's been great, that's the reason why that is a reason why tech stocks have had an incredible better part of a 15 year run jeff is because capital has been there free and easy capital 
has really juiced the returns that a lot of those businesses have gotten because they've been able to access the capital cheap, make great profits. And the other part of it is that premium value, the valuation aspect of it. When yields are lower, the multiple that investors will pay for stocks moves higher, right? Because you'll pay more for that risk to get the higher return. Everything's flipped now, Jeff. Everything's flipped. This is probably going to be the worst year for venture capital in, I don't know, a decade, maybe longer. You're not going to get a Series B. You're not, you know, these, there's, these next rounds of funding are not happening. You look at the IPO market. It's dried the hell up. There's no money going into it because nobody wants to risk on right now. It's the macro environment's part of it. Inflation, all of those things are part of it. But the reality is that there is safer ways to get yield, to earn some sort of return. And if I'm a pension fund manager right now, I'm being really conservative, right? And, and I think those things are affect, they're going to continue to affect equities for a while. So, so that's why I think this is a bigger story than just 2022, because it's not like, okay, everybody freaked out and now Amazon's fallen by half or whatever it is, and it's going to go back to where it was. No, nobody's going to pay that premium anymore. Jeff, they're not going to pay the same multiple. Yeah. And I think, you know, you said earlier, we're going to have to start talking about valuation more. Um, and I think that's going to be where, just to think about stock investing for a second, that's going to be where it's going to be the the place where I think investors need to spend a little bit more time and energy thinking about the price they pay for the business because you you can still see returns on your stock investments in a macro environment like this, but not if you're buying everything completely overvalued. Now, the right. nice thing about the prolonged bull, uh, bear market is that the valuations have come down. That's just a natural byproduct of what we've been through for the past year plus. Yep. So if you go buy, just let's just say Amazon, since you just mentioned it today, you're going to get it at a significantly uh, a significant discount than if you bought it a year ago. Um, but what I think is the, uh, tied to what you were just talking about about venture capital and, and how that has dried up and there's no more IPOs. You're gonna you sh- we should see better businesses come to the market. Right? We should see more mature, larger, probably more profitable or closer to profitability coming to the market. So, how many, Jeff, how many times did we talk about that over the past year and a half? It's like, why in the hell is this business coming public right now? Yeah, because they could and because they yeah. needed – and they, it was a quick way to raise cash. But I think that – just to not be all doom and gloom, I think that's going to be a good thing for investors, especially yep. the ones that don't have the time or knowledge to do the deep research. Um, you know, we, we forget, but when these big mega tech companies like um, – like Google and um, and Meta when it was uh, Facebook, when they came to the market, they came to the market profitable. Like they were strong businesses that came that IPO'd and you could buy stock in. And over the past two three years, it's been it seems like a majority non profitable, cash burning, hopes and dreams kind of companies. So I think what's going to help investors moving forward is we're going to get the companies that do come public. You're going to see are going to be stronger businesses, better businesses, because 
there's no way they can otherwise. Um, so I think it, it should it should help a little bit in that sense. But yeah. you're, you're right in terms of a longer term story that started in 2022. I, I think interest rates slash inflation, it's all kind of tied together. Um, that's going to be absolutely the number one thing. The other thing that tied to this idea that I, I want to look for, but I'm going to be keeping an eye on, and I've said this to you, I think privately a few times, and I might have said it on the podcast as well. What I've noticed over the past couple quarters, listening to earnings calls and looking at results of companies, is how much they say pricing action and price actions and pricing power. Like these big companies have spent this whole year passing along as much of the inflationary increases to their customers as they possibly can. What I'll be watching sometimes raising their prices more than that. Right. What what I'll be watching moving forward is like for how much longer can they do that and then when they can no longer do that what happens to their margins what happens to their profitability you know pick a big retailer like Walmart as an example right they can only pass inflation costs along to consumers to a point because they still want to be the low cost provider of goods to get people in the door so when they can no longer pass that along now they're going to take it on the bottom line, right? They're going to have to eat those inflationary increases, and then that's going to be lower earnings per share and missed analysts, you know, missing guidance and stock tanking and, and things like that. So um, that's the piece. As I was thinking through, like what I want to keep an eye on with this story moving forward, it's really that um, you know these consumer facing businesses. How are they going to um, handle it when they can no longer increase the the costs on their customers? Jeff, I want to talk a little bit about about what's going on with crypto. It really it really started a little more than a year ago. I think it was last September, October, probably October of 2021, when crypto prices started to really fall sharply. It was about the time really inflation started kind of rearing its head, and you know the, the term transitory was talked tossed around, and there was this idea, especially with Bitcoin, right? As digital gold is like this hedge against inflation and like this hedge against uncertainty. Um, and that that has not proved to be the case for Bitcoin or really any of the others uh, crypto assets. They've come down. And last 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 winter through the spring, the term that was being tossed around was crypto winter, right? And everybody was pointing backwards and saying, "Well, this is this is normal." You know, you look at Bitcoin and it. it loses about half its value every year and then recovers and charges much higher and does it again and again. Is it right? So we heard that. But really, since this late summer through the fall, you know, things have kind of turned. And it's, think about Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX Exchange and Alameda, his hedge fund that was tied to, to FTX. And others that I'm not going to mention the names of that have just completely imploded. And I think we have two different related stories. So the, the first story is the crypto crash, right? We saw this massive run up. We saw a lot of profit taking. Then the, the selling begets more selling, right? We saw, and we saw the run, right, where everybody was trying to get out. And they continue to drive prices down. And I'll ad- admit, Jeff, it, it caught me a little bit. Off guard that we saw as big of a sell-off as we did, because I thought that we were starting to see more of like the economic potential for for blockchain and Web three as actual tools, right? So things like using smart contracts for to 
make sure like music artists get paid uh, and, and driving costs out in places um, where there's existing rails that take like two or three or five percent uh, in, in industries that, w- that their margins are like two or three or five percent. Right. So um, I start I thought we were really starting to see more enough progress to like demonstrate some of like the economic value of the blockchain. Um, and, and it caught me off guard when it fell that it did. Now, the second part of the story, Jeff, is fucking fraud. Let's let's be honest. You know, the things that were happening with Alameda and FTX exchange and some of the things with some of these other exchanges, they were just straight up fraud. They were you you had the the people behind the scenes that were stealing people's deposits, funding their activities and losing billions of dollars. And they were they're criminals, right? These are people that committed crimes intent with intent they intended to commit crimes they knew they were breaking the law when they did it jeff they were doing the same thing a year ago they were doing the same thing a year and a half ago it's it works when cryptos are when when these assets were gaining value because everybody was making money and they're like okay we can just cover you know it's fine and my guess is that a bunch of people had the idea that you know what we're losing money let's let's pull some of those deposits and it's going to turn Crypto is going to turn. It's going to turn and we're going to make money and we'll put it back and everything's going to be fine. But that didn't happen. And so now we have this environment where I think the two things are being conflated. I, I really do. I think that most outsiders, the people that don't really know or understand what's going on with blockchain and what it can do are kind of seeing the fraud and the, and the decline in values of, of uh, cryptocurrencies as kind of being the same thing. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I, the parallel that keeps jumping out to me with what we've seen in crypto over the past year and is the, although not with the same level of fraud, is like the run up that led to the dot com bubble burst. Yeah. Um, you know, if you, if you go back and read accounts of that time in the public markets, you know, I, I mean this almost literally, you could make a company called, you know, dog shit and put dot com at the end of it and it would go up because you it was dog shit dot com and not just dog shit. Um and, and it was crazy because these companies like they would have their earnings calls and they'd report like visitors to their website. Right. And those yeah. are the metrics that analysts were like using to like measure the value of the business. And then inevitably, right, it all sort of came crashing down and all of the companies like dog shit dot com left were gone, right? Because they really never had a business. So but then some of those companies stuck around and we still have them today. And I, and I think what's going to come out of the crypto crash that we're living through right now is something similar where a lot of these, you know, tokens and coins that really were never anything and these these fraudulent businesses are going to go by the wayside and what will come out of this in who knows how long, it could be another 5 or 10 years, will will come some legitimate businesses and and use cases like you said smart contracts things like that built on blockchain. Um, so what I what when you say it gets conflated, I agree with you because it seems like there's only two opinions out there. There's the still Kool Aid drinking believers in all things crypto, and then there's the it's all it's all smoke and mirrors, it's magic beans, it's it's reuse. You know, I think the answer lies somewhere in between. Yeah, and it'll be, it'll just take some time to sort of shake all that out, and um, and then you know I think at the end though we will see. Some things come out of this. Now, I I personally don't think 
crypto is going to be the the thing that replaces fiat currency or anything like that. I agree. Um, but you know, if you look into like we keep saying smart contracts, and I, that's the thing I keep coming back to. Like there are some use cases that just make so much sense that ultimately I think that's where we're going to end up, where we have some of these. Um, you know, technologies in, in use in specific cases, and it will change the world in a sense, just like the internet did. Um, so, but I, I think the truth lies somewhere in between it, it all being a fraud and it being the next huge thing. You know, it's somewhere probably in the middle there. Can I, can I give my like easy way to think about crypto as a technology and how it can affect like the world? Please, please do. So let's see, we'll use the internet one as an example. So you go, you go back to 1999, 2000, 2001. It was not easy to buy anything on the internet, right? Nobody felt safe. Like all the protocols for like security were not there. It wasn't easy, right? Think about today. Everybody buys stuff on the internet. It became, it became easy. It became safer. It became the normal way to do it, right? So what happened? The, the, the thing, the thing that re- removed the friction happened to make it work, right? The, the security and, and safety of online transactions with the digital rails of Visa and MasterCard, that's basically what happened, right, that, that changed it. Now, there was a cost. The, the benefit to retailers, because if, you, if you've been in a grocery store or Walmart any time in the past decade, who rings up your groceries? You do, <laughs> Right. Um, because, well, you don't have to put money in a cash register anymore and take out your change anymore. You swipe your card or you tap your phone and it all happens and they get their money and they've got cameras and you scan your goods and most people are honest, right? So they were able to eliminate that labor. That happened in the stores because the internet happened for e-commerce and that cut off the labor cost of having to have people for, to run cash registers, right? You could order it online. So that dro- drove out a cost. So the percentage of money that Visa and MasterCard charge was worth paying. Their fees were worth paying because it drove down all the other costs, right? Now, here we are today. Visa and MasterCard are the entrenched players. They are so deep in the entire financial system, the way that we do business, the way you buy things, the way that banks relate to us, right? The way we relate with merchants, right? But the thing is, for a lot of merchants, that has become a massive expense for very very low-margin businesses, right? And everybody else gets to keep your money for a period of days or weeks before you get it back. So if you're a merchant, somebody walks in and swipes their card, you don't have their money. If they give you cash, you have their money, but nobody gives them cash anymore, right? If you go get a refund, you don't get your money back. For, you know, it takes time for all of these things to happen and that velocity of money has real impact on the economy and the price of goods, and it has real impact, right? And then there's the fees that happen in the background that we don't see, but we pay because it has to get baked into what merchants charge, right? Blockchain can address those things. Right? I don't want to say Bitcoin fixes that because that's stupid and it's kind of funny to say, but it's not exactly true, but it can be true to Jeff's point at some point down the future. So I just think it's really, really interesting what it's happening. And there are compelling use cases. Um, yeah. It's just all of the entrenched things in between now and that future have to go away. And it has to be completely seamless for you and me. Jeff, what's your, what's your next story here? 
So I feel like if we're going to talk about big stories of 2022, even though maybe we don't want to, we have to talk about Twitter and Elon and Tesla. Um, and I, I don't know that, I mean, look, if we're talking about the biggest stories of 2022, we have to acknowledge that it was an enormous news story. What I think is more interesting and I think an underappreciated aspect of this whole drama is, you know, statistically, not a lot of people are on Twitter, but the types of people that are on Twitter are pretty influential. So if you think about every politician and every journalist has a Twitter account, um, that's a pretty powerful minority of people on that platform. And now it's owned by someone who has every incentive and financial interest to not to to not allow all of the speech to come through that would have come through that platform, um, yeah. and you know you're starting to see Tesla stock not do so hot, and it could be for any number of reasons. But you know Elon Musk has an enormous conflict of interest happening right now, um, and this has been sort of my soapbox about this ever since it start the drama started. But you know t- Tesla wants to sell cars in China. And China has every incentive to say to Elon Musk, hey, listen, do us a favor, take down these posts about dissent, or you won't sell cars in China. You know, and we yeah. all know what he's gonna do. Right. So I I think the more underappreciated and under talked about aspect of this story is the massive influence that one person with the incentive that Elon has to sell cars all around the world. Now you know is now facing as the owner of of Twitter. This has been an enormous news story, and I think it will continue to be um, through twenty twenty three. Although I don't think Elon will still own Twitter by the end of the year, but we can we can save that for maybe another prediction show. Yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not so convinced um, that about his his the end of his the end of his ownership of Twitter. But yeah, it's interesting, right? Because if you go back to I don't know, 150 years ago, like the history of newspapers in this country is largely the same thing, right? The, an owner with an agenda, right? That they, that they kind of had their thumb on the editorial scale based on like their personal. So that's not new. That's not new uh, broadly, but it's certainly new in the age of the internet where you have an individual owner of a private company, that is so influential broadly and so used, like you said, the ways that it's used by the people that it's used for, um, that I, I, I agree. I agree. Um, the, the other side of it that's been interesting is we've seen kind of the conflict of interest has worked the other way too, to the detriment of, of Twitter because Elon Musk, again, the co-founder CEO, largest shareholder of, of Tesla, We've seen General Motors and others that are major advertisers that have kind of taken a pause and stepped back from advertising on the platform because it's tangential, but you're giving money to your biggest future competitor. So um, definitely an inter- interesting one to keep keep following because I think you're right. It has implications that I think that are just broader than, than FinTwit, which most of our listeners are going to be familiar with. All right. So let's move along to our, our next topic here. And it's one that just recently sort of started to redevelop and change where it had been, and that's China and the zero COVID policy. Um, so obviously, this has been an, a major story throughout 2022. Um, that com- uh, China's basically been on lockdown 
more than it has not been ever since the COVID pandemic started. Yeah, two and, um, two and a half years. Yeah, and this has had obviously a, a, an enormous human toll on the people who live in China. But if we're going to stick to just the investing in the stock markets and things like that, it's had an enormous economic impact as well. Um, because so much of our economy is now tied to the Chinese economy, and it, it's it's led a lot of big American companies to start to rethink their strategy in China. You know, you, there was a report recently that Apple is starting to look at moving some manufacturing to India. Um, so it's really sort of thrown a monkey wrench in the world order. Not to sound too dramatic, um, and I think no, it's I, made I don't some, think that's dramatic at all. I mean, I think I think you could say. The vast majority of the inflationary pressures that we're feeling broadly, beyond energy prices, of course, every basically everything else, um, is is kind of starts back in China. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting because it's really shifted. I think the way companies look at China from a land of vast opportunity and to one that maybe isn't going to be, you know. As much opportunity as we thought, and and maybe a, gi- a giant go- mine full of cheap labor. Yeah, but I wonder. But but I, look, it was always going to be that. But it was that with economic opportunity. So now I wonder yeah. if it, right. if well, it was it's no just, longer just the provider; it was the buyer. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I I don't know yet as we as we sit here at the end of 2022, you know, if their recent um, changing of the policy is going to stick. You know, like who knows? Like th- this could this could swing back towards zero COVID again. Um, but really, how it shakes out in terms of how open the Chinese government allows itself to become will go a long way towards how twenty twenty three shakes out in terms of things like inflation, and and then by virtue of inflation, the stock market and things like that. Yeah, the, the, it, I've, been, I've been thinking about this one a lot because I. I think it's going to continue to have some effects on manufacturing capacity and like all the supply chain pressures um, because now it's going to go from the stops and starts phase where the government saying, okay, there's a outbreak in this province. Everybody's locked down, right? Manufacturing stops, like all of that. I, so I think that aspect has changed, but now the question is going to be, are there going to be enough workers to man like the manufacturing and the logistics and all of those kinds of things. Because part of the story too is not just that they're opening back up and you think, okay, broadly that's fantastic. And, you know, human rights, sure, that's a real positive. But frankly, the vaccine that China has used is not a great vaccine. And you look at their older population, which is we've seen with, with COVID, that's by far the most at-risk population like the percentage of, of vaccinated older Chinese is very, very low, right? Yeah, they won't take it. Yep. Yeah. So so in terms of like the the risk of of death is still enormously high. And then broadly, you know, in the West and most most of the world, um, that has been more open, right, for, for the past couple of years, you actually have some natural immunity that people have had that have been exposed and I had a family member that tested positive for COVID that was in our house for a week. And was masking and trying to be careful, and none of the rest of us were, to be honest with you. And nobody else tested positive, right? Um, and and I, and I just can't help but wonder if, like, just because you know, you've got a billion people and a lot less people have actually been exposed to build some natural humanity, that that it could 
it's kind of like there's there's this unknown threat there to the the global economy. Um, and that might seem seem cold, right? To not think about the human aspect of it, but you know that's not our lane here. Yeah, and I think what's interesting and in, to, to watch is you know the companies that have business in China, whether it's a little exposure or a lot, they're thinking decades in advance. Right. You know that you know if if you're if you're Apple Starbucks. just use them. Yeah, Starbucks, Apple, like you're you're planning either to you know to sell I, iPhones or have factories, or you're looking to open Starbucks locations in China. Like you're thinking five, ten years down the road when you start to plan that. So what I don't know is if the last couple years have been a long enough bump in that road to, to make these companies now rethink their strategy and and pull back or think differently, or if if a pivot here at the end of 2022 gives those companies enough reassurance that okay this was just a really tough couple of years and but the long term opportunity will still be there i think that's still to be determined um cuz but what has happened at the same time is there's been a pretty big you know shift within our country towards bringing some manufacturing back home and diversifying our supply chain so we're not so china dependent so it'll be interesting to see how much this 2 3 year sort of um zero covid part of this relationship how how it does or does not impact the global economy 5 10 15 years down the road jeff let's talk about our most underrated story of 2022 and really 2023 i think so the one i think has been underrated and and maybe it's because there haven't been any too many like really really big stories in this category but I think an underrated aspect of everything we've been through, and this again will continue in the 2023, will be merger and acquisition activity. Um, you know, just like this new macro environment will probably mean that less well-run businesses come to the public markets. You know, the SPAC boom is over, IPOs have slowed down or dried up. I think for the ones that are already on the public markets that benefited from the last couple of years, I'm really curious to see how many of them survive and 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 remain standalone companies um i'm just thinking back through my own portfolio in 2022 there's been three or four companies in my portfolio that have been taken private or acquired by someone else um and that's just my smallish portfolio right so i'm really curious to see if this is the beginning of a trend that continues all through 2023 and i think I'm really looking more specifically into the tech sector. I think yep. there's there were so many SaaS cloud, low profitability or no profitability, cash burning, high growth businesses that have just been beaten down so much that I just can't see or I, I expect to see a lot of them get swallowed up by bigger, stronger companies. So I think that's been an underrated story so far, and, and I think maybe because it's just this this could just be the beginning of that. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious to see how that plays out over the next year. Jeff, this is one we agreed on um, that I, I think this is an underappreciated story, and and is going to continue to play out because everything that you said, and I want to take it another step further. There, there are a lot of those companies that went public that you talk about have a great product. Right. A really, really good product and a product that can uh, we see really high margins from, right? But the problem is they're a standalone business with executive team and a sales staff that that's all they sell is their product and their customer support. And 
all of their regulatory expenses for filings and those layers of costs take this great product and make it a really shitty cash burn business, right? That need to be acquired, right? They need to be part of something bigger where all of those layers go away. And it's just this division of some other bigger company. Um, I think you're hundred percent right that that's, that's going to be the case. And thinking about the toolbox, this is why I wanted to talk about it a little bit more thinking about the toolbox. One of the things that I'm going to do with my portfolio this year, because I own quite a few of those great product companies that I need to figure out which ones I think can be great future companies and the ones that maybe not so much. And I need to make some decisions. Yeah. When I think back to the one, the companies I sold back in November on that, those two crazy up days that you and I both did some weed pulling, the ones that I did not sell were the ones that were cash flow and or cash flow positive and or profitable. Right. You know, they still had a good pro, a great product with really strong growth, but they were not burning money and they were not marching away from profitability. So, um, cause what I'm, what I'm curious to watch in 23 as it relates to mergers and acquisitions is, and I think this is why we haven't seen more yet. Some of these money, some of these companies are just going to run out of cash. Um, and they're not going to be able to, you know, do a secondary offering and they're not going to be able to go out to, to get debt at nearly the low, you know, the 0% they might've been able to a year ago. Right. So I think that's when, you know, I bet you these bigger, more cash heavy companies have a nice little watch list of businesses they'd like to snatch up and they're just waiting for even a better price when they get desperate and literally are about to run out of money. Um, to, to for for you know to either be brought private or you know or to have someone come in and acquire them so it'll be something to watch yeah so I mean what we're seeing is even a lot of the, the the ones that are being taken private by private equity they're building businesses right they're taking it and they're going to make it part of some software group that they already have so yeah I think that's I think that's the case Je- Jeff I think we did a really good job here of taking our our last story here our underrated story and tying it to where we started with interest rates and inflation because they are intimately connected together. And that's usually how these sorts of things, things work. So Jeff, let's take a quick break here. Um, stick around people because so you might, you might hear an ad. Um, you might just hear Jeff again on an ad or you might just hear us again. So either way, we'll, we'll see you after the break. Okay, everybody. Welcome. Welcome back here, Jeff. One of the things that we talked about that we're going to start doing in 2023, um, for our B block, as we in the industry call it, is stock of the week. Might not be every week, but we're going to have kind of a framework that we're going to use for that. And we thought it'd be, it'd be fun to do a stock of the year segment today. And we're going to hit on three different, three different um, kind of ideas here, Jeff. So we're going to talk about stock of the year that, that was one or two that were emblematic of 2022, ones that sort of sum up all the things we've been talking about and why. And then we're going to talk about a few companies that, despite all of the down, you know, down market craziness of 2022, actually seem to buck that trend and do well. Um, and then we're going to end with a couple stocks or sectors or ideas that we think we're going to just keep an eye on for 2023. So why don't you kick us off, Jason? What do you have in mind? Yeah, so I'm going to I'm going to say Lucid Group first of all because I think this is kind of 
a, a good poster stock of where we were and where we're going. So Lucid Group is uh, the EV startup, electric vehicle company. That's they're they're just I think they're just getting to some manufacturing, uh, absolutely burning through cash, and the stock's down like seventy percent. It's down sharply, sharply. So I think in a lot of ways that's really emblematic of so many things that happen. But with Lucid, I think there's there's more to it too. And the reason I want to say it's emblematic is because this is also a company that went public and is trying to be a startup in a business that has been historically not a great business to invest in, and that's automobiles. Right? It's a low-margin, highly cyclical business. And it's important. It's this To me, it's a good reminder of, as an investor and as a stock picker, to do as many things as you can to put tailwinds behind you, right? Because the market doesn't give you bonus returns for the degree of difficulty. Tesla, as an example, it's had a terrible year, but it's still up a massive amount from anybody that bought in its first year of existence as a public company. It has been an enormous wealth creator, and it's been the unicorn of unicorns because it's done it in an industry that nobody else is. Like, I think Ford is the only major U.S. automaker, not including Tesla, but it's the only major U.S. automaker over the past hundred years to not go bankrupt, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's the industry kills capital. Um, and investors are looking at Lucid as being another unicorn of unicorns. And I don't know that Lucid would have made it this to this point as a public company in, in without being in that easy money environment that we're coming out of. So does Lucid make it going forward? Probably. Could it actually end up getting acquired because of brand equity? Um, Travis Hoyam talked about that on our uh, prediction show is that we could see some of these EV companies that get acquired because of brand equity and brand value. We'll, we'll see. But I, I, I think that going forward, it's going to, it's tough for a lot of these EV companies to say that they're going to be winning investments because the entire sector has not been a good place to invest ever. Jeff, what you got? So I want to talk about target and, the reason I think Target has been pretty emblematic of 2022 is um, when you think about the the re- retail cons- consumer facing, consumer discretionary, consumer staple companies, um, they've sort of been the the poster child for how hard it is to sort of as a big, you know, huge company like Target, how hard it is to just adapt to this rapidly tra- changing supply chain inflationary macroeconomic environment that we saw over the past year plus um, you know so they've had a really rough year stock performance wise partially due to the fact that they screwed up their inventory they bought too much of the the wrong things at the wrong time and then they had to say that they did and then they had to mark those things down and try to sell them and it was like a multi-quarter drag on their results and 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 the expectations in the market and it crushed them. Now, I don't think you're going to find anyone that thinks Target's not going to be fine. Or, and you'll probably find a lot of people who think it's still a really strong company and now's a good time to buy it because once it kind of figures the short-term issue out, it should be fine moving forward. But it just, to me, they stick out as you know telling the story of how rough this year has been and how even with a really good management team doing their best, it, it sometimes it's just hard and you can't you can't not have some missteps and some mistakes you just have to sort of overcome. And I think that's pretty common for any company that's been around for a long time. You're going to hit it 
hit a span at some point where it doesn't go exactly your way. Um, but to me, the, when I think about 2022 and how crazy of a year it's been, Target jumps out to me for that reason. Jeff, I want to I want to add a thing about Target. Do you mind? I don't mind at all, Jason. Please do. I'm gonna I'm gonna share a screen, which is great for podcasts. But I'm yeah. sharing it because Jeff, I want you to see it here. And the other part of the Target story for me is, frankly, the business misstepped far less than the market's expectations of what it was going to do, right? It, it missed expectations by a massive amount. But I think those, those expectations were maybe unreasonable because if you look at valuation, so to me, this is a great, you talked about this earlier in the show, valuation matters, right? And price to sales, again, is not always a great metric, but I think it's really good for looking at stable businesses that are similar, at one point, Target was trading for like 1.3 times sales, which is about double what it has historically traded for, Right. which is about 0.65 times sales, which is similar to what Walmart trades for, which frankly is a very reasonable comp um, to to the business if you're going to, if you're going to value it. So to me, it's a great emblematic of valuation matters, have good expectations matters. Yeah. And also don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like you said, this is the time to buy target. I'm, I'm going to cheat a little bit with my stocks that buck the trend of 2022 because it's from the only sector that really absolutely killed it. And that was, um, oil and gas industry, the energy industry, uh, oxy here, occidental petroleum, Jeff, doubled in value this year. It's way, way up over the past few years. So Oxy, so this has become one of uh, the bigger stocks in the Berkshire portfolio. They actually, they, I think they talked to the SEC to get some special disp- dispensation to buy more than 10% of it because that changes like the rules about what you can say publicly about the company and like being an active investor versus passive. Um, and as we know, oil prices, you know, have, have skyrocketed yeah, you know, they were over hundred dollars, like over one ten at one point this year. Oxy's an oil and gas producer, right? That's their core business, um, and they have absolutely crushed it, um, and are set in pretty good position. You know, particularly if oil prices continue to stay above sixty or seventy dollars a barrel for a while. I have another one I want to mention too, Jeff, real quickly, and that's First Solar. This is another one. The stock has absolutely just done. I think it's up like seventy percent this year. They make solar panels. They make solar panels for utility-scale projects. These aren't solar panels that go on people's roofs. These are the ones that go out in the desert um, or on the farm and that kind of thing that are these massive solar farms. First Solar's done really well because we've seen the regulatory tailwinds have been favorable, um, particularly in the, in the U.S. with um, tax credits that have been passed. We know there's Europe's dealing with a lot of energy challenges, so renewables are being viewed very favorably. So the market's very forward-looking right now and is um, looking at First Solar as a future beneficiary. Um, I will say this, though. It's, it's, it's in an industry that's historically been a terrible place to invest. Buying solar panel manufacturers has been a, a great way to lose money um, o- over the past 15 years. So those are my two that have kind of bucked the trend this year. So I have one that I think bucked the trend, and it's Starbucks. And 
the reason it it was the first one that I thought of when I when I was trying to think through this, and part of it's because you know I've only owned it because I've only owned any individual stocks for a few years now, and it just in my gut it always feels like it's not doing well for me. It's just one of those stocks where if you ask me without me looking, like is Starbucks up or down, I'd say it's down. Um, but when, when I went and looked, it's actually well, beating because the of market. all the news this year hasn't been favorable, right? The labor right. challenges and the management exactly. issues and all that stuff, right? Right. They're in the they're in the news, and it's never good, right? Exactly. Like the, the labor issues, the CEO change. You know, Howard Schultz is back, and he picked a new CEO who doesn't Schultz start for the third. Like, yeah, who who doesn't start for another like year and a half? I mean, it's just been crazy. And I went and looked, and they're actually. Can, I mean, they're can down you really have your CEOs being an intern? Because I feel like their new CEO is an intern. He kind of is an intern. Yeah, yeah. It, it's weird. But so there, it's down on the year. It's down almost 16% year to date, but that's better than the market, right? So um, it bucked the trend in the sense that it actually is beating the market year to date, despite all of the drama, despite the fact that the, you know their their biggest international market, I think, is China. And, oh, by and far. Their, yeah. Yeah, by far. And they're planning to keep expanding in China. And all the China numbers are still not great because of all the stuff we previously talked about. But you know, I look at the chart, and since about the spring, early summer, it's just been up and to the right. I mean, not a straight line. It's been choppy, but you know, here they are ending the year in a in a place to beat the market. So, to me, like it it should have been down massively, considering all of the stuff we've talked about just on this episode. But it's going to beat the market in twenty twenty two. So it's bucked the trend. Well, one of the things that, that Starbucks has done a great job of is figure out which markets they want to operate the stores in and which ones they want to license the stores in. And it's just been so good for its margin profile and its cash generation. Like they're, they've made China priority where they want to own the stores, where they want to run them, right? And that's, I think it's a smart strategy because this is, again, they're saying this is going to be our most important market for the next couple of decades. It's going to be bigger than the U.S. and North America before long. So it, it makes sense. So valuation matters. Cash flows matter. Controlling your future matters. So I like that one. Yeah. So what is your stock or sector or trend or whatever that you're looking looking to watch for 2023? Yeah. So I'm going to go with a sector here. It's kind of, well, kind of a, a, a cohort. Let's call it a cohort. Um, and that's, it's in renewable energy. Um, so, but it's the part of renewable energy where the business is actually make money consistently and generate positive cash flow. Um, and that's independent power producers, sometimes called yield co's. So these are the companies that finance or build the, these big utility scale projects, sometimes like commercial scale projects. So like on a parking deck or a warehouse or that kind of thing, they, they manage them, they finance them. They sell the power on long-term contracts, generally to utilities um, sometimes I sell them to big commercial users. So like uh, you hear like Google and these other big companies that have their carbon initiatives where they're saying hundred percent of our power is produced from renewables. They sign these PPAs to buy the power from the Yolkos, right? That's how they do it. Um, so these are the companies that, that basically what they do is they finance the deals, right? They finance the, the, um, and own the, um, the utility scale projects, and then they lock up those contracts for 20 years to sell the power and they make money on the difference between what they can sell the power for and the cost to finance um, those facilities. And it wasn't a great year. So some, some of my favorites, so Brookfield Renewable, um, for example, that's one of my favorites. 
it's down 37, 38%. And that's in total returns um, since the beginning of 2021. If, if we look at this year, it's down like 26%. Hasn't been a good year. Um, some of the ones that I'm fans of that I also own, like Clearway Energy, um, it's down 6%. That, th- this is total returns. This includes a dividend. It's down 6% this year, so it's done better than the market, but still down. Um, Next Era Energy Partners, they have a yield code that they that they use, or Next Era Energy's yield code, Next Era Energy Partners, another one that's down by double digits. But you look historically at these really well-run ones, especially ones that are tied to good, like the top of the funnel, um, have access to like the pipeline of projects uh, like Brookfield and, and Next Era. Um, uh, Clearway, they're, they're part of um, uh, Global Infrastructure Partners, a big private equity infrastructure um, business that like that's the top of their funnel gives them really good access to deals, right? For transactions. And these really good ones are really good at finding the right opportunities to invest in and looking back through their portfolio of existing assets and finding ones that maybe they don't have great growth profiles going forward, or they know there's because they're constantly in conversations with those pension funds the the private equity businesses out there that have large pools of money that they want to generate some steady income from, they're always in conversations with these folks. So they know when there's opportunities to sell assets at a premium to what they've invested in it. And they're just really, really good at it. And I think the tailwinds are so strong for renewables going forward for a lot of reasons. The best ones are international. They're not just in North America. They're kind of all over the world. The tailwinds for energy production are massive. We need more of it for the entire world. And this is the area in the value chain of renewables where you can make good money consistently over long periods of time. The manufacturers, it's a race to the bottom. It's highly cyclical. The the retail stuff selling to residential um, users is not great, right? Really thin margins. You use a ton of debt. Um, you don't always get the kind of returns because they like the things that they retain aren't necessarily worth what they're claiming they're going to be worth. Um, so I'm a really, really big fan of, of, of this sector going forward. I think investors could do really well. What you got? So I'm going with the sector too. Um, but it's for specific reasons. So I'm going to be watching the tech sector. Um, and part of it's cause I've talked a lot about it already. It's just been on my I own a lot of tech stocks. I think that's partially due to when I started buying individual stocks, you know, during like sort of the tech run up. I have a tech heavy portfolio. Um, but to me it it's a lot of the stuff we've already talked about. I I'm really curious to see how much further valuations will will fall. I want to see how much more pain is coming before these um and I'm not talking like all the speculative tech stocks, the ones that are good, solid businesses that I think have bright futures, ones we've talked about on this podcast a bunch of times before. I'm just really curious to see like what is the – when you're paying a quote-unquote premium for a, a better company in this space, what does that look like? So I'm just curious to see sort of where valuations end up in 2023. And also tied to what we talked about earlier, I want to see where the mergers and acquisitions are in this space. Um, what companies go private? What companies get acquired by other companies? How much scrutiny there is on those acquisitions if they're being made by some of the big tech giants? Um, so to me, that whole sector is going to be really fascinating to watch because it's been 
the the one that has sort of driven the bubble we saw in the last couple of years. Okay, Jeff, I think we're done. Um, just one more thing before we before we go here. I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you to you. Aw. I mean it. I mean it. Yeah, big hearts to you too. Again, visuals play so well on, <laughs> on podcast. But no, I'm serious. Um, this, this podcast happened because, um, frankly, because of you, because of your encouragement. And uh, here we are. And I want to... I want to thank our, our listeners, too, because they keep listening, so we keep recording them. Yeah, I want to echo that. I want to thank me as well. Um, as you should. No, no I, honestly, I, I agree. I want to thank our listeners because not only are they still listening, more of them are listening. We're seeing um, our, our listener numbers kind of tick up slowly over time. So thank you to everyone who's listened and also shared the podcast Um and I want to throw the thanks right back at you because, yeah, I might have gotten the ball rolling with this, but you actually said yes to it um, and brought to the podcast actual knowledge. So um, whereas I'm the pretty face for radio, you've brought the content. So uh, it's been a fun first uh, six months or so, and I'm looking forward to what we can do on the pod in 2023. Here, here to that. Okay, friends, as we always like to close, just that reminder, Jeff and I, of course, are here to ask the important questions and give our answers um, very verbosely. Is that a word, verbosely? Very it is verbosely. now. It is now. There you go. Uh, very verbosely. But just remember, people, you need to answer those questions for yourselves. Make your own decisions, people. I believe in you. All right, Jeff. We'll see you next time. See you next time. <laughs>